a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. This is where we revel in wrong think, and lest we need an explanation for that, can I just briefly lay out? There are so many people anxious to tell us this is what you can think. Not that, not that, but only this. And uh, frankly, I'm I'm one of those people who is just very committed to the idea of clear, independent thought, even if it means you march to a different drum than 99.9% of the other people. As long as your behavior is peaceful, who cares? So that's uh, that's one of the unofficial slogans of the Brian Hyde show is we revel in wrong think in that we challenge the narratives that are being foisted on us day in and day out. We question the conventional wisdom. And it doesn't mean that we have all the answers or that we have cornered the market on knowledge. It just means that we're courageous enough to ask the questions that we're not supposed to be asking in a never ending quest for clarity. I hope that makes sense. Anyway, I'm glad you're with me today. Let's dive right in. Uh, You know, I've been talking a lot with my wife about uh, the upcoming school year. And boy, is there a huge question mark hanging over her head right now as to uh, how this school year is expected to unfold. And I, you know, I I can't blame her, you know, with with the COVID-19 guidelines, she and other educators, she's a, a seventh grade math teacher are looking at what is going to be required in terms of social distancing, the kids being masked, in terms of they're going to, the teachers are going to have to wear shields everywhere they go. It's, uh, it's very daunting, to say the least. And I, I'm not trying to point fingers, so please, you know, this is not, you know, her administration is just totally up in the night. Everybody's doing the best they can to try to meet the situation as effectively as possible. But uh, there are a couple things that are working against them. Number one, the virus is not something you can actually hide from. And secondly, human nature being what it is, keeping kids strictly on on task and following these guidelines, it's not going to be very easy. And in fact, uh, the teachers unions are actually making some pretty big noise right now about how, well, we don't know that it's even going to be safe for our, our members of our union to go back to school. Now, maybe I shouldn't confess this, but I'm going to say my wife has bravely resisted joining either of the teachers unions. She's not a member of AFT. She's not a member of the NEA. And it's just because she is an independent thinker herself. She's a marvelous teacher, by the way, too. And her district absolutely loves her. But, uh, you know, some of the things she gives up by not being a member of these teachers unions is she gives up, uh, you know, the collective bargaining power that they're wielding, you know, when it comes time for, you know, negotiating uh, wages and whatnot. She also gives up legal representation in which if if an accusation is made or if some kind of trouble should arise, the teachers union looks after its own. But there are some other things that come along with teachers unions that are maybe not so good. And she has looked into and researched for herself some of the things that particularly the, the NEA stands for and just decided that's not something to which I want to attach myself. Okay, it's a matter of personal conscience. She doesn't go out there and, you know, be an activist against him. She's just saying that's not for me. And as I looked over a letter that was sent out, signed by members of actually by the, the presidents and the leadership of both the AFT and the NEA. I'm really starting to understand what it is that, that she was concerned about. 
In fact, there's an excellent article by Chuck Schalberg on intellectualtakeout.org. It's titled Training Activists, One Pandering Letter at a Time. This letter is to students. It's a message to students from the nation's two major public school teachers unions, which you would think would be rivals of sorts, but apparently they are in agreement on at least one important and troubling matter. And Chuck Schalberg says in the aftermath of George Floyd's death, presidents of these two organizations placed an ad in newspapers all across the country labeling it a message to our students. He says, signed by both presidents, this message came off as an AP course in promoting activism while engaging in pandering, as opposed to anything approaching a traditional advanced placement course. In the, this version of, the, of, of AP, the instructors have perhaps revealed more than intended. Now, he breaks it down for us. Everything begins on a non-controversial note, quote, We teach to prepare our young people for the future, hopefully for a better future. Who could quarrel with that, right? Yet the trouble starts shortly thereafter in a series of sentence fragments. We teach them to dream, to think, to engage, to act, to make a difference, to lead. Now still, he says, who could object to the sentiment expressed in each fragment? The heads of these teachers unions surely wouldn't presume that they are the only instructors in classrooms. That quickly becomes apparent as the message shifts into full-scale pandering by resorting to nothing less than a full sentence, and and often, our students teach us. Ah, the obligatory line that invariably goes something like this, I learned just as much from my students as they learned from me. He says, what we soon read from these union officials is that they have learned that students often take the lead in movements for social change. Perhaps this even happens courtesy of a little shove from their teachers. This stretches back to the student lunch counter sit-ins of the early 1960s and extends to those protesting for social justice in the wake of the murder of George Floyd by a police officer. By the way, if you think back about three years ago, uh, remember the uh, Parkland, Florida uh, high school shooting? How many students uh, were urged by their teachers or their administrators, administrators rather, to do a walkout to protest gun violence and the need for common sense gun laws? Do you remember that? Okay, it's, it's gone down the memory hole for some, but... For some of us, it's, it's still uh, quite memorable. Chuck Schalberg says, lest they be lost in the wake of a new wave of student protests, our union presidents want to assure their protesting students that they are with them all the way. And why not, given the violence of modern-day lynchings and brutality by police? That's their words, by the way. Quote, violence of modern-day lynchings and brutality by police, end quote. Now, Chuck Schalberg says what's especially admirable for our union leaders is that their students have responded, quote, peacefully and nonviolently. Now, there was a choice between responding peacefully or responding with violence. Some chose the first path, but many did not. Do these union leaders so much as mention the looting, burning, and killing amid the general mayhem? Not once. Instead, they launch into a brief history of the successfully nonviolent efforts of Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., In fact, they deploy a full sentence as they continue telling their less-than-full story, nonviolence is the weapon of the strong. Perhaps so, says Chuck Schauberg, but doesn't that imply that violence is a weapon of the weak? Are the looters, arsonists, and rioters of recent weeks evidence of that? Now, clearly, the lessons of Gandhi and King were not much in evidence in the aftermath of Mr. Floyd's death. They certainly weren't learned by many student activists nor have they apparently been learned by the union leaders who would presume to teach them and learn from them. Continuing to play the role of teachers, 
These union leaders declare the country to be in the midst of three crises, an immediate health crisis, an accompanying economic crisis, and the continuing crisis of the failure of the American justice system. And he asks, might there also be a spiritual crisis, not to mention a family breakdown crisis? If so, both go unmentioned in this message. Now, it should almost go without saying that the two union presidents believe that these three crises have been aided and abetted by a certain unnamed sitting president of the United States, whom they pillory in their letter. To remove any doubt, this would be the president who, quote, threatens to deploy military forces to quash protests. In the face of such threats, students are praised for not being deterred from their allegedly nonviolent protests. Specifically, they're praised for persisting with peaceful protests throughout our land. Now, nowhere in this message is there any mention of the violence that has besieged our cities. Chuck Schauberg says perhaps some comfort can be taken from their silence. At least their pandering didn't take them to the point of praising it, but it ought to have been mentioned and condemned. As matters stand, our union heads have apparently concluded that the only perpetrators of violence within the country are the police and the president. And their solution to this violence is to hope that students will use their power and voice to continue to raise awareness and organize. So long as schools remain closed, well, they'll likely have plenty of time to do both. What if schools open? Well, Chuck Schalberg says then teachers will have a captive audience to help ensure students' collective awareness remains raised. After all, an election looms, and what are schools if not a tool for getting their favored politicians into office? As that election approaches, he says the presidents of the NEA and AFT seem to have a pretty good idea as to what their true mission really is. They've inadvertently stated as much in a message that manages to give concerned adults a, a few darn good reasons to consider keeping their children out of union clutches. Again, this is from Chuck Schalberg. Teachers union addresses an, a teachers union addresses activist letter to students training activists one pandering letter at a time. By the way, I have a link to the letter as well as to Chuck's article, and they will be in the show notes, which you can access at thebrianhydeshow.com. And speaking of uh, schooling, I know a lot of people are deciding, well, are we going to keep the kids in school or out of school? Coming up in the second hour of the show, I will be visiting with uh, Fiona Harrigan, who is a contributor to Young Voices. And she says, listen, folks, those who are saying the golden age of homeschooling is upon us, Fiona warns, not so fast. This may not be homeschooling's moment. And her explanation for why that is so is actually a really well-thought-out reason. So I hope you'll join us in the second hour to hear her. We'll take a quick break, and we'll be right back. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. Listen, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, can I just offer this suggestion? Drop by the website, thebrianhydeshow.com. You'll find there is a subscribe button right there, you know, on the landing page. It's easy to find. And, you know, I'm assuming if you, if you have a chance to catch the show live, if you catch it streaming on the Loving Liberty Radio Network or any of the other networks that carry this program, great but for a lot of people, podcasting just makes sense. I'm happy that uh, you're accessing it however you're doing it, but uh, that subscribe feature is really a, a remarkable thing, and it will notify you the second that that show lands. Every time a new one is posted, you will be notified, and uh, I guess we'll, we'll both be better for it. 
At least that's that's what I'd like to think. All right, moving on. I know that uh, right now this is a very tough time for a lot of people. Uh, the economic repercussions of all the lockdowns are just beginning to be felt. And we haven't heard a lot about evictions and so forth, but I have spoken personally to a number of business owners who you know, are right there on the verge of destruction. And this is through no fault of their own. It's not like, oh, yeah, they over leveraged themselves and they, you know, they borrowed more than they could possibly pay back. No, it's more like uh, government told them, oh, sorry, you don't have preferred status. These businesses are preferred. Notice I'm not saying essential. And you're non-preferred. Because that's really what it comes down to. So through no fault of their own, they're being prevented from going to work. There are employees who are prevented from going to their jobs. And uh, right now. Congress is paying people a lot of money not to work. I've talked to a lot of folks who've said, you know, I I actually make more money not working than I do in my my previous job. Now, the stress of unemployment is immense. And and I'm going to speak just for for guys. Uh, we, We tend to wrap our identity up into, you know, that provider persona. So when a man has time on his hands, when he is not actively providing um, it gets in our heads. It's it's a very difficult thing to bear. And there's a very interesting article from Peter Suderman from Reason.com that makes a strong case that all this uh, <clears throat> help that Congress is offering, the Employment Insurance Benefits, the CARES Act, and so forth, may have eased the pain of shuttering much of the economy, but it's making it harder to get things moving again. Listen to this explanation. He says, perhaps the simplest and most important lesson in economics is this. Incentives matter. If you tax an activity, you make it more expensive and you get less of it. If you subsidize an activity, you make it more lucrative and get more of it. So it stands to reason then that if you respond to a pandemic by offering people more money to stay unemployed than their former employers can afford to pay them, you make it less likely that people will return to those jobs, causing long-run disruptions of the labor force and worsening COVID-19's impact on the economy. Now, roughly speaking, that's what happened with the CARES Act, that $2.2 trillion relief package passed in March as part of the congressional response to the coronavirus. Among the bill's largest provisions was a four-month federal boost to unemployment benefits, or UI benefits, unemployment insurance benefits, rather, adding $600 a week on top of whatever amount state programs already paid. Now, in a typical state where unemployment benefits often pay around $275 a week, that meant furloughed and unemployed workers could collect nearly $900 a week. In a state like California, which offers as much as $450 per week, seven days of not working was all of a sudden potentially worth more than $1,000. Now, for people making the minimum wage, this represented a substantial windfall. But even a full-time worker making more than $15 an hour or about $600 a week could see a bonus for staying off the clock. Kind of crazy stuff, huh? So... You can see where this provides incentive for people not to get back on their feet. A May working paper by a trio of economists published by the Becker Friedman Institute at University of Chicago found that under the expanded benefit regime, quote, two thirds of UI eligible workers can receive benefits which exceed lost earnings. One fifth can receive benefits at least double lost earnings. So the average replacement rate for all beneficiaries was 134% of previous earnings. Now, in theory, 
there were coherent reasons for giving workers a financial incentive to stay home initially. Starting in March, state and local officials forced many businesses to close. Those shutdowns fell hardest on service sector employees, many of whom are hourly wage earners. Plus, the coronavirus spread from proximity, including the sort of extended indoor close quarters activity found in many workplaces. The boosted unemployment payments were designed to do two things, provide financial recompense for workers whose jobs were eliminated by government mandate and slow the spread of the virus by making it lucrative to stay away from other people. Now, the Department of Labor data showed the biggest beneficiaries of the program were the nation's poorest. But over time, the problems with this approach became more apparent. As states began to reopen their economies in May, some employers, particularly restaurants where job losses were concentrated, reportedly found it difficult to rehire workers who were earning more from unemployment benefits than they would make from working. So for an employee making 10 or $15 an hour, the short-term financial incentive was clear. Better to stay unemployed and collect unemployment benefits until the federal supplement ran out. Now, although the unemployment rate came in lower than expected, but still quite high, In June, this incentive could have ripple effects long after the pandemic has faded. One of the biggest challenges, even for a healthy economy, is matching workers with employers. So by encouraging people to stay away from jobs they'd previously worked at, the federal unemployment insurance boost destroyed employer-worker matches that had functioned in the past. And this made it more difficult for employers who wanted to reopen to do so. And it removed otherwise capable workers from the labor force, eroding their ties to productive employment. Yes, the UI boost eased the immediate pain of shuttering most of the economy, but it also made it harder to get things moving again. Now, the article goes on to talk about how the expanded unemployment benefits caused other economic headaches. The CARES Act also included the creation of a Paycheck Protection Program, PPP, which compensated some businesses for keeping workers on their payrolls essentially paying a percentage of their wages if they were kept on staff. That created a conundrum for workers and employers trying to figure out how to best navigate the enforced worklessness of pandemic lockdowns. Furlough employees and let them take the newly generous UI benefits or keep them on the payroll and apply for government funds to cover much of their salary. At best, it was confusing. At worst, contradictory. The fact that both programs suffered serious implementation failures just made things worse. The PPP was inundated with unanswered applications. It rapidly ran out of money, even after imposing secret caps on the loans it would distribute, and was eventually given a second tranche of funds that were also subject to undisclosed caps and confusing application rules. Unemployment benefits, meanwhile, were paid through clunky state systems, many of which struggled to handle the load caused by millions of newly unemployed applicants. By the middle of May, Florida had processed more than 1.4 million UI claims, Less than half had actually been paid. Not only did the existence of expanded benefits create unintended consequences, some people couldn't even get them. So there were likely to be longer-term political complications as well. It wasn't too hard to see the expansion of UI benefits as a small first step toward a universal basic income, or UBI, or something similar, in which the government gives nearly everyone in the country a recurring payment. In fact, in May... A group of left-leaning senators, including Kamala Harris and Bernie Sanders, proposed a follow-up to the CARES Act that would send most American households $2,000 a month until the economic crisis stemming from the pandemic subsides. Now, never mind that the UI benefits already in place were probably making the economic crisis harder to reverse. UBI critics have long argued that it would disincentivize work by making not working more lucrative. The expanded UI benefits offered evidence in their favor. 
Similarly, that $600 a week figure chosen for the expanded benefits seemed to presage a different policy argument, one that was focused on the minimum wage. For years, progressive activists have clamored for a $15 federal minimum, $15 an hour for 40 hours a week. That's 60 bucks. Although the federal unemployment benefit boost was initially set to run for just four months, the depth of economic disruption caused by the pandemic has sparked talk of expanding that time horizon. A $3 trillion coronavirus response bill passed in May by House Democrats actually included a provision extending the expanded UI benefits till the end of 2020. But Republicans in the Senate refused to consider the legislation, specifically citing continuation of federal unemployment benefits as a non-starter. I guess the bottom line is in the economy, even in a pandemic economy, incentives are everything. We can't forget that. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Again, you can access the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. There are other notes, and then sometimes I even include articles that I don't have time to get to in the course of the show or podcast. And I always try to pick something that's going to be interesting or something that sheds a little bit more clear light on some of the things going on around us. I particularly am looking to steer clear of things that are more heavily partisan and just that help you better understand the world and, and better understand what's happening around us as well as how you and I can use our influence wisely. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel a, a little uh, sense of trepidation as I look around me and I just think there is so much rage coursing through the veins of society right now. And it's not just the rioters. Okay, that's that's a noticeable and, and very um, powerful thing that's in evidence. You know, the, the anger that you see out there with the, the tearing down of statues, the spray painting, and all of the stuff that's happening to, to, to show people are not happy. You know, including beating people, fighting with the cops, whatever it is. There's a lot of rage out there, but I see it in other places, too. And it's the the confrontations between people over masks or no masks or even just behind the wheel. Drivers are wound up tighter than watch springs. And I mean, more so than usual, where I live along Utah's Wasatch Front. Whew, that's always been a little bit of a problem. It's getting worse. It's ugly. But to keep things in perspective, we need to understand the days of rage that we are seeing right now are not something that's brand new. Okay, this is like this is, this is unprecedented. It's never happened before in American history. To back that up, there's a remarkable article from Brian Miller from ammo.com. Um, man, this guy does good work. And, and this is a great historical perspective of the extensive left-wing bombings and domestic terrorism of the 1970s. It's fascinating because some of the gripes that, that spurred those days of rage in the early 70s are actually quite common with some of the complaints that we're hearing said today. Brian Miller says, As the summer of 2020 dawned, left-wing radical groups began rioting and taking over parts of America's city. Now, while this specific form of left-wing violence is new, left-wing violence itself is far from new in the United States. In fact, one of the most hidden and concealed parts of recent American history is the extensive left-wing violence that began in the late 1960s and continued into the 80s. He says, at first, one might think these were just isolated incidents of small-scale protest or even minor violence. However, upon even brief examination, we find that the outpouring of leftist violence over this time period 
it was anything but minor. The most likely explanation for why you've never heard of this until now is that the events of these years have been consciously buried by those who would prefer that you don't know about them. Now, as the left once again ratchets up both its rhetoric and its physical violence, it's time to re-explore this period of American history. What started as a nonviolent student movement quickly escalated into a campaign of terror against the American people. And while the similarities may not be terribly striking yet, he says astute readers of this article will quickly see the world in which we live more and more closely resembling the days of rage. The days of rage, he says, were in fact a very short and discreet period of time. Three days of demonstrations that took place October 8th through the 11th, 1969. Now, throughout the article, he discusses events that took place both before and after the days of rage. But you consider this period a sort of coming out party for the weathermen, also known as the Weather Underground. This is a group that started as a faction within Students for a Democratic Society. Without getting too much into the weeds, much of what happens during this period of leftist terrorism in the U.S. has its genesis in a faction fight between the weathermen who controlled the national SDS organization, Students for a Democratic Society, and the rest of their faction known as the Revolutionary Youth Movement 2, or RYM 2, who were in opposition to the more classically Maoist Worker-Student Alliance. Whoa! So it really was about Marxism, huh? Tensions ran high because the stakes were high. Nothing less than total control of the largest student radical organization in America and all of the spoils that came along with that. Many within the Weatherman faction of of RYM, too, believed that they were fighting literal fascism coming to America in the form of President Richard Nixon. Huh. Sound familiar yet? It's about to sound a lot more so. On October 6, 1969, a statue memorializing a police officer killed during the 1886 Haymarket riots was blown up. No one ever figured out who committed this act of iconoclasm, but the tangible effect of the act of political terrorism was the final isolation of the weather underground from the rest of SDS. The weathermen then shifted their activity to the Days of Rage, a protest rally with the slogans, Bring the War Home. Many wielded lead pipe and were clad in football helmets, ready for a confrontation with the police. But turnout was disappointing. The weathermen expected a massive turnout, but only got about 800, who stared down 2,000 Chicago police, likely itching for another fight after the 1968 Democratic Convention. By the first night, 500 had deserted the protest, with about half of the remaining 300 weathermen being being weathermen from around the country. Abby Hoffman and John Freund, two members of the Chicago 7, showed up, but declined to speak and left. The remaining hardcore of weathermen and their supporters shifted the goalpost to simply fighting the police as constituting victory. At 10.25 p.m., Jeff Jones, one of the leaders of the weathermen, gave the signal and chaos erupted. The crowd moved through the city, smashing windows of ordinary cars and middle-class homes throughout Chicago, as well as small businesses such as barbershops. The next day, October 9th, a women's militia comprised of about 70 female weathermen planned to attack attack a draft board office, but were prevented from doing so by the Chicago Police Department. The governor called up 2,500 National Guard members to protect Chicago, and protests for later in the day were canceled. The Black Panther Party's local leadership attempted to distance themselves from the weathermen, describing the group as anarchistic, opportunistic, adventuristic, and custeristic. A lot of istics going on there, right? The next day was the last day of the Days of Rage proper, centered around a march of 2,000 through a Spanish-speaking area of Chicago. The next day, October 11th, the weathermen attempted to reignite the protests, but were quickly sealed off by Chicago's finest. 
About half the crowd was arrested in 15 minutes. It was after the events of the Days of Rage that the weathermen became the Weather Underground and began moving underground as the name would imply. At a meeting known as the Flint War Council, which was attended, by the way, by Barack Obama advisor William Ayers, taking place between December 27th and 31st, 1969, the weathermen dissolved their version of SDS, changed their name to the Weather Underground, and declared that they would engage in guerrilla warfare against the United States government. Now, before continuing with the laundry list of terrorist actions carried out by the Weather Underground, Brian Miller says it's briefly worth explaining their ideology. The Weather Underground was not a classically Marxist nor, strictly speaking, a Maoist group. Their cues came more from the new, from the American New Left. Thus, much like the radicals creating chaos in American cities in the 20s, 20s, they were far more focused on opposition to the American state, white privilege, and white supremacy than they were in creating bonds across the working class. In this regard, they differed from both the Maoism of the Progressive Labor Party, made up of former members of the Communist Party USA who supported Mao against Khrushchev, and thus had very real ties to the American labor movement and the so-called New Communist Movement, comprised of younger student activists sympathetic toward Maoism and Third Worldism, but without organic ties to the existing communist left and labor movement. They did not, as some other groups in both Maoism proper and the New Communist Movement did, seek either ties with the American working class, which they largely considered bought off by imperialism, or the official sanction of Beijing a long-term goal of both Maoists and new communists. But Brian Miller says there are three important takeaways from all of this inside baseball. The Weather Underground considered the American government to be fascist. Secondly, they believed that the American military and civil government institutions should be treated in an identical manner to how the Viet Cong would treat the American military. And third, the American working class, in particular the white American working class, was considered apathetic and useless at best, but generally more considered an active opponent of revolution, thoroughly reactionary, and thus the enemy. Now, the weathermen after the days of rage engaged in a series of over a dozen bombings or attempted bombings throughout the U.S. And there's a nice list of these attacks, New York City arson attacks, the Timothy Leary jailbreak, the U.S. Capitol bombing, the Pentagon bombing, and so forth. Brian goes on to talk about other groups that were, were formed, including the Black Liberation Army, May 19th Communist Organization, Symbionese Liberation Army, and others. The bottom line is most Americans have never heard of these acts of terrorism from leftist groups that were so numerous throughout the 1970s. But here's a prime example of how those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. He says the urban unrest which has rocked America in the early 2020s is nothing new. The 1960s saw both race riots and left-wing terrorist groups looking to exploit animosity between racial groups in America. So here's the question that remains before us. What are we going to do about it? Now, the answer so far from our elected officials is not much. As Brian Miller states, though, if leftist terrorist cells were willing to go this far when they had active opposition from government and corporate figures alike, what are they going to do when confronted with apathy or encouragement from elected officials and the business sector? He says the answer remains to be seen, but will certainly be some variant of nothing good. Again, you can access this article in the show notes. You can find it on my website, thebrianhideshow.com. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. This is The Brian Hyde Show. I am Brian Hyde. Introduction, blah, blah, blah. Going to be opening up the phone lines in the next hour of the show. And again, I have a special guest joining me. Fiona Harrigan will be joining me to talk about how this may not be the golden moment for homeschooling that uh, a lot of us have been thinking it might be. I've kind of been optimistic just because I, I think it's a very viable alternative. And I like to see choice in how parents educate their kids. But uh, timing and the way that people do it and the, the incentives that they have to do it actually matters a lot. And Fiona has a, a really serious explanation that I think is worth considering about how this pandemic is not homeschooling's mo- moment. So join us in the next hour. She'll be my guest. In the meantime found a very interesting article that uh, corresponds with a lot of the craziness that we see going on. It's called Markets and Everything. Investors will pay moving costs for companies leaving high-cost business hostile states like California, New York, New Jersey, and Illinois. Now, if you're a business owner, maybe you have felt the pinch and you've kind of thought, wow, it's hard. And I think it's hard for people just about everywhere. But in these four states in particular, it's crazy. The author is Mark J. Perry who back in November analyzed the Census Bureau's state-to-state migration data for 2018, top inbound, top 10 inbound versus top 10 outbound states. How do they compare on a variety of tax burden, business climate, fiscal health, energy, housing, and cost and economic measures? The top four outbound states in that year for 2018 were New York, Illinois, New Jersey, and California. And he's got a nice table that uh, that helps demonstrate this. You can see this by going to the link, which will be provided in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Now, the obvious reasons for significant out-migration from those states included things like high taxes, high home prices, high energy costs, business-unfriendly environments, excessive regulation, poor state fiscal health, stagnant job and overall economic growth. State-to-state migration data for 2019 will be released sometime in November. He says, I'll update and post the analysis then. From Joe (laughs) Joe Vranich, president of Spectrum Location Solutions, Mark Perry says, I learned by email about an interesting new market solution to help companies relocate from high-tax, high-cost, fiscally unsound, and heavily regulated states like California to low-tax, low-cost, fiscally sound, less regulated states like Texas, Nevada, Florida, and Arizona. By the way, they were all among the top inbound states in 2018. Joe recently sent the following email to a number of news outlets. Quote, The horrifying defund the police movement that California politicians are endorsing is likely to cause an upsurge in companies planning to leave the state. That's most likely to uh, to be uh, to add social upheaval to California's harsh business environment. And it may be the final straw for companies that have been undecided about an out of state move. In fact, that's most likely to be the case for companies based in San Francisco, Sacramento, San Jose, Los Angeles, and San Diego, each of which which has seen civil unrest. He says the news is private investors are now willing to underwrite relocation costs for companies that move from those high-cost business-hostile states, not only California, but also New York, New Jersey, and Illinois, to business-friendly states where they can enjoy greater profitability and growth. The new program to finance out-of-state moves is perfectly timed for beleaguered companies. California, he says, is our new number one target because 
the irresponsibility of California's politicians has reached new levels. This year alone, business taxes will worsen, new employee mandates will add to labor and litigation costs, and high electricity prices are a certainty for businesses and consumers. Now, this was followed up on in a June 30th, 2020 press release providing details on how this new markets in everything solution will work. This press release says investors are launching a new program that will incentivize more companies to leave California and other states with punishing taxes and regulations like New York, New Jersey and Illinois in favor of friendlier business climates found elsewhere. As of today, a private equity firm will pay relocation costs making it easier than ever for, for entrepreneurs to exit troublesome states. Business owners know they can improve profitability through an out-of-state relocation, but many are reluctant to undertake the costs of moving and finding a suitable building or land. Joseph Ranich, president of Spectrum Location Solutions, said, Investors are seeking to provide capital to companies with annual revenues from $5 million to $200 million that are likely to enjoy greater profitability in a business-friendly location. He said, in certain circumstances, investors will purchase a company outright and move it to a more appealing state. That is entrepreneurship at its best, isn't it? Apparently, investors will provide financing tailored to meet individual circumstances like purchasing property and buying a, and building a building, rather, or buying and improving one for the company with lease and lease-to-purchase options. Lower capital expenditures can be found in other states where land and buildings are less expensive and where streamlined permitting approval allows faster construction. Also, enhancing company owners' probability of selling or recapitalizing their businesses, which is particularly helpful to owners that are implementing generational transitions, so like a family-owned business or founders that are seeking a liquidity event. They'll also provide capital in the form of equity, debt, preferred equity, and also the outright acquisition of a business. And Vranish said a primary objective is to invest in companies in a way that enables them to thrive in a more attractive location. For example, a California firm moving to Texas could save about 35% in operating costs thanks to lower taxes, a more reasonable regulatory environment, lower workers' compensation costs, and much lower energy costs. Some other states offer similar benefits. Frannich said companies are finding that high numbers of employees are willing to move to out-of-state locations that offer tax savings, superior school systems, and affordable housing. Now, the coronavirus has introduced a new factor as real estate experts report a surge in people looking to relocate to suburban communities from our biggest cities. This is the part that caught my eye. He added the American Enterprise Institute reports that the pandemic's infection rate has been quite low in small towns and cities. So it's no surprise that people are willing to move to places that reduce exposure density and where infection appears less likely. Over a recent eight-year period, it's estimated around 13,000 companies left California in full or in part, and nearly $77 billion in capital was diverted to out-of-state locations. That's according to research by Spectrum Location Solutions. Vranich said, no one needs to take my word for why company leaders are unhappy in California. Now for the 20th consecutive year. CEOs nationwide, surveyed by Chief Executive Magazine, have declared California the worst state in which to do business. By the way, there's a bonus chart that's included in this story. And again, this is what really caught my eye. I'm not a businessman. So, you know, it wasn't like, oh, as I was reading my business weekly, I noticed this. But what, what really grabbed my attention was the current one-way 26-foot U-Haul rental rates between California and Texas. There is a five to one 
one-way truck rental rate ratio, suggesting there are about five times as many trucks leaving California for Texas as there are trucks returning from Texas to California. Look at the difference in these prices. The highest ratio is from Los Angeles to Houston. From Los Angeles to Houston, a U-Haul will cost you $4,203. Conversely, if you want to move from Houston to Los Angeles, that same truck will only cost you $793 to rent. From San Francisco to Houston, $4,575. From Houston to San Francisco, it's only $914. Los Angeles to Dallas, $4,017. From Dallas to Los Angeles, only $758. And from San Francisco to Dallas, $4,275. From Dallas to San Francisco, that U-Haul truck rental will cost you $854. Can you blame people for wanting to move? I mean, look, I'm looking at it from the standpoint of the businesses, I think, have great incentive, especially with high taxes and high regulatory costs. And, you know, I think didn't Elon Musk... uh, Talk about uh, he was he threatened to to leave as well. Maybe he'll do it. But I think about the homeowners, I think about the, the average citizen, the average taxpayer. If you lived in one of those cities and I'm talking one of the big cities and I'm, I'm going to throw one that, that wasn't even mentioned in here because okay? so we had Los Angeles. We had uh, what was it? The top four, New Jersey, California, New Jersey and Illinois. And New York. Those were the four top states. I think about, though, like Portland, Oregon, or Seattle, Washington. And this is what's happening there is happening in other places in which, you know, you see this unrest, you see these riots, and the police essentially are being told, stand down. I think we saw this in Chicago in the last few days as well. St. Louis, you know, where the DA wants to file felony charges against the couple that walked outside with guns in hand to defend their home against the mob that was trespassing on their private street. Can you blame people for, for wanting to get out of these urban jungles? Can you blame them for wanting to find a quiet place? Maybe downshift their lifestyle just a little bit in order to have a little peace and quiet? I certainly can't. But look at those laws of supply and demand. Look at the cost of renting a U-Haul. I mean, for everybody who's relocating, I wish you the very best. May you find peace and happiness away from that urban jungle. This is The Brian Hyde Show.